Welcome back. Um, our first question, somebody is asking me to comment on um, wording changes from the original Steps to Christ book to a, quote, recovery version of Steps to Christ. And there's a sentence that they've quoted, um, and they're asking if I have any idea why the wording meaning is, no, I was not involved in that project. I would encourage you to uh, reach out to whoever the editorial board is for that project and ask them what they intended by that wording or, or, or change. Uh, I'm struggling with where God wants me to worship. I live in a country with only one SDA church, which I went to. Uh, it has been it has about five people, no pastor, and I had no connection. However, the Sunday church does not have a pastor and with a good message and people are welcoming. Do you think God would prefer me to uh, just do my worship online? I miss fellowship. So worship is actually social connection with people, to love others, to, to engage together. And my experience is that it's about the quality of the heart. Do you have Christ reproduced in the heart that you live out his design laws of truth, love, and freedom? Not uh, not the specific trappings of some of the technical applications. As we journey along in our life, some people will have, um, as, and Paul makes this very clear in Romans 14, some esteem one day above another, some esteem all days the same. Uh, let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. And we're at different places and different um um, in, in our personal maturing and where God is leading us to make changes in our own life. And if you find that those people actually have love of Christ in their heart, I have many Christians who do not fellowship in the Adventist system who are I, are, are, I am closer to in fellowship. Uh, they love uh, the, the design law message of God. They practice the principles. They present truth, love, freedom. Uh, we have some differences in the foods we eat, for instance. I don't think that's going to be a big deal at the end of time, and it's going to keep people out of uh, heaven. Uh, it's not Jesus says not what goes into the body, but what comes out. It'll make a difference in our health, that's for sure, but it doesn't make a difference in our character, uh, particularly when it's not that what does make a difference, and Paul makes this clear in Romans, is what we believe about the food that we eat, whether we're doing things out of rebelliousness and selfishness or not. So I would encourage you to find a fellowship where you can fellowship and I know some uh, people that uh, have great fellowship with their Sunday churches, but they value and appreciate what I said about um, the Sabbath as a day of rest that God gave us to show that we have real freedom. And thus, every Sabbath is a day with their family. They go out into nature or do other things to uh, praise God on the Sabbath, but they actually fellowship and worship with a Sunday church. Well, where does it say in Scripture, thou shalt not attend worship services praising Jesus Christ on Sunday? No, this is almost how it's taught in Adventism, that if you go to a praise, if you go to a worship service to worship Jesus on Sunday, you're somehow doing wrong. I've never seen that in Scripture anywhere. Have you? <laughs> Revelation 20, 12, there are two separate books, the book of life and the book of damnation. Are the saved and lost written in the same book? So I would encourage you to reread Revelation 20, 12, because there's not a book of damnation. And if you can find somewhere in scripture, a book of damnation, please send that to me um, because that's not stated. That's an assumption. It says the books were open and another book was open, the book of life. Okay. So there are books mentioned, but it doesn't mention the book of damnation. You have to read into it what that means. The, if you let revelation um, describe itself, uh, there are Two specific named books that I've been able to identify so far. If there's a third that I've missed, somebody can email me and let me know. But the two specific books in Revelation that are open is the book of life and the book sealed with seven seals and earlier in the book. Those are the two books that are open. And the book of seven seals is, my view, God's 
is the book of the history of the great controversy um, that God foreknew with his foreknowledge. Uh, and, and I guess you could infer there's one other book, and that's the book that the recording angels, that they recorded history as it un- unfolded. And the book with the seven seals is unsealed by Jesus compared with the history as it actually transpired. And then there's the book with the, with, uh, with the, um, uh, the book of life with the, quote, names that are recorded. But what are names in Bible? But character, it's our individualities that are stored there. But I don't, I haven't found a book of damnation described in, 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 the, in the Bible. If you find that, let me know. We know that things must happen as they are designed, like sinless Jesus rising and destroying death. Is it the same for the design law spreading across the globe? Our study of this message is expanding to others. How is common reason expanding from your metrics and evidence? Well, yes, uh, the Malachi gives the, um, the metaphor of the S-U-N, the son of righteousness, rising with healing in his rays. And as uh, if you think if you've been in a dark cave and, uh, and you come out um, before dawn and you sit there and watch the sunrise, that's a very nice thing. If you come out of a dark cave at noontime, it's overwhelming and you want to run back into the cave. And so there is this metaphor in scripture that at the end of time, the sun of righteousness rises gradually with an increasing spreading light over the planet to bring people step by step. Those who have sensitive hearts, those who are not blind, the blind, it doesn't matter if you bring them out. They don't see the light either way and they won't uh, respond to the light. But for those who haven't destroyed those faculties that respond to the light of truth. Uh, the sun of righteousness is rising. And I think this message that we're giving is part of that end time light shining around the world. And uh, God is opening up a lot of doors uh, for us. My, my, uh, um, where God has led me professionally to my position at medical director at Honey Lake, we just this week had a couple of uh, events where I was speaking to Christian groups from across the Southeast and in which they uh, are now familiar with, they got put in their hands, could it be the simple workbook, the Remedy Psalms, uh, made familiar with the Come and Reason website. And we have many new non-Adventist folks now that are following our ministry online, reading our materials online, embracing, and I will tell you a whole bunch of people that are coming up and, and sharing with me that are embracing the design law message, but they are not adjoining, and I want you to get your mind around this, and I don't ever expect this to happen. They are not joining the Adventist organization in the same way after Christ's crucifixion when the apostles, who were primarily Jewish messengers, went out and began spreading the gospel, the gospel convertees, the people coming to that message, were not joining the Jewish nation. And the reason they weren't joining the Jewish nation is because the Jewish nation was persecuting people who had that message. And people who come to this design law message are not going to join the Adventist system because the Adventist system persecutes people who teach this message. Am I right or wrong? Okay, so I think we're going to find this message expanding, but sadly, uh, the the active leadership in the Adventist church works against this message in the same way the Jews did. But I think the Jewish nation, again, held the oracles from which the apostles took the message to the world. And I think the Adventist church has had a message that has been rejected since 1888 that we are taking to the world that is God designed for the world. And I think we're going to see a great response to it. And we are seeing it. And I think God is going to open up some more doors for this. And, and one way this is going to work, because it's the, the message of our creator that is designed to that. Remember, Jesus said, I, I want you to have I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. 
that when we harmonize with God and his design laws across the domains of our life, physically, psychologically, spiritually, relationally, we thrive. We get healthier. And so I think that you're going to see this coming through the domain of so many people struggling now with fear, with anxiety, with depression, with relationship problems, with addictions, that we are do- what we're doing at Honey Lake is we're- we've created an entire whole person healing program based on the design laws of God and all the domains and people that participate are actually being healed. They're being restored. And part of that is being healed in a, in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as designer and creator, not as ruler and dictator. And it's a wonderful thing to see. It says, would you please discuss and provide design law definition of inspiration? Well, that's a really interesting question. It's a really interesting question. I like this question. Uh, But inspiration can have a, a, a variety of different meanings, but they're connected. For instance, when you breathe in, you inspire, inspiration. And when you breathe out, you exhale, okay? Or you expire. If you breathe your last breath, you expire or die, Okay. And uh, that's your last breath. And it says in Jesus on the cross, he expired or he gave up the ghost or breathed out the spirit. He expired. So inspiration is uh, both physical inspiration, but in this sense, it means breathing in or taking into our heart something that invigorates or energizes us. So inspiration can be the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we are to breathe in that inspires us with love, truth, wisdom, insight, discernment. That's the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Or we can be inspired by a demonic spirit, a worldly spirit, to hate, to be prejudicial, to uh, be aggressive, hostile, mean-spirited, unforgiving, unkind. And so inspiration is just the process of being inspired. What we're inspired with depends on what we take into our heart. Does that, that make sense, everyone? While Satan is still in heaven, Ellen White says, while Satan was still in heaven, Ellen White said, this is out of Patriarchs and Prophets, page 37. Lucifer began to insinuate doubts concerning the laws that govern heavenly beings, intimating that through law, that though laws might be necessary for the inhabitants of worlds, uh, angels being more exalted needed no such restraint for their own wisdom was sufficient to guide. And there's another one similar to that. And they're asking, what, what is this law referring to? If you read her more widely, she actually says in another place to the angels, the idea that God had a law came to them as something unthought of. They they um, function the role of family um, and, and not as slaves, as friends, not as slaves. And so the idea there was a law, something unthought of until Lucifer raised the idea that there were laws. And so his idea that there are laws that you're under uh, in, in, uh, introduced the idea that we don't have freedom, but they always had freedom because God's laws are design laws. So think about the types of laws that are in operation that we're expected to live in harmony of, but we've never been told about. And so when Isaac Newton discovered, not created, the law of gravity, and he goes and tells his friends, hey, I've just discovered the law of gravity and describes how it works and the constants and the variables and so forth, you can see his friends scratching their head going, huh, gravity is a law? Huh, never thought about it. It's just how things work. Okay? It's never thought of, unthought of. That's the law in heaven prior to Lucifer's allegations. What he alleged and intimated was God's laws are not like that, that God's laws are just made up rules and angels don't need rules like that. And if you break God's rules, he'll punish you. And thus in another place, as our of ages 761, she said that in the opening of the great controversy, Satan declared the law of God could not be obeyed and that every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. And that idea of law 
corrupted angels, corrupted Adam and Eve, corrupts Christianity, and key, and delays the second coming of Christ as uh, church, the churches and the Adventist church in 1888 rejected the design law view, doubled down on the imperial law view, and continue to teach this lie about, about God. And, and then there's a question that says, if, if I responded to an article that repe- appeared many years ago, I think six years ago, uh, in um, an online magazine called Fulcrum, um, by somebody um, who, uh, for whatever reason, felt that it was his mission on earth to go around uh, the Adventist circle uh, publishing and writing things against Tim Jennings. And uh, I have never responded to that article publicly. I have responded to it privately. I can tell you that that um, article is filled with falsehoods, allegations, outright lies, a couple of things that are true distortions and misrepresentations uh, all designed to uh, make it appear that I don't believe in the Bible and I don't believe in the special message for this time and that I don't believe in the substitutionary atonement and I don't believe in God's law. And of course, if you listen to us, you know none of that is true. And I will say it here again for anybody who reads that article, um, we teach in our ministry that it is not possible for any human to be saved from sin without the substitutionary sinless life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we believe in the substitutionary sacrifice or atonement of Jesus, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin for us, right there, substitution, but here's the reason, so that we might become the righteous of God. It was for restoring us to righteousness, to purity, to holiness. That was the reason. And then we go on to explain what was necessary for that achievement, which is different than the penal legal view, which teaches that we be, we are declared righteous even though we remain unrighteous in some legal mechanical way as the legal payment is applied not to uh, – that Christ's achievements are not applied in our hearts – but Christ's achievements, whatever he did, are legal and applied in a courtroom in heaven or to God to change him in some way. So we, re- we reject the penal legal view of it, but we don't reject substitutionary atonement. How do I know if I'm breaking one of the design laws? Is there a list of such laws? Actually, go to our website, type, type in design law, and, uh, and then you can – we actually have made a list, but I'm sure it's not a comprehensive list because we don't know all things, and there's laws we haven't even considered that are part of the design law. But you will see some of the major big ones there, and you can then inquire yourself. John 20, 22, uh, it says that Jesus uh, breathed um, breathed onto the disciples, and, and Jesus breathed on them. It says, receive into your hearts and minds the spirit, and uh, which is similar to God breathing into Adam the breath of life, and he became a living um, being. It says, uh, what, what was going on here? This was an acted out delivery of the special power of the Holy Spirit prior to Pentecost, on the disciples, and God, and Jesus was acting out the uh, the idea that the breath uh, the of life is the special energizing power of God, which Jesus purified at the cross when he picked up the life given to Adam, contaminated by Adam, and purified that life through his sojourn on this earth as a human being. And thus he is saying, through Jesus, we get a new life, a new heart and right spirit, uh, a, a, a new spirit, a new breath, a new life energy, a new motive. And rather than being energized by fear and selfishness and survival in me first, we are now energized or brought to life with love for God and love for others. And that is, is the metaphor of what's being acted out there. 
This is why do humans have a proclivity, proclivity to doubt God if we're made in God's image and so forth? Because at, when Adam sinned, the natural pure life of love and trust, which God breathed into Adam in the garden, was contaminated with fear and selfishness. And we are now not only created in God's image in Eden, we are born in the image of Adam because God gave Adam and Eve the ability to procreate beings in their own image. And Adam and Eve, having corrupted themselves with fear and selfishness, we are born corrupted with this fear and self-centeredness that undermines our ability to trust in God. And that's why we have to be reborn with a new heart and right spirit that trusts God. It says, uh, um, this is a quote out of, it's a really, really good quote. It's such a good quote for all those penal legalists who want to believe God has to use power to inflict and punish sin. Listen to this quote somebody posted out of Patriarchs and Prophets 728. David had neglected the duty of punishing the crime of Amnon. And because of the unfaithfulness of the king and father and the impenitence of the son, the Lord permitted events to take their natural course and did not restrain Absalom. When parents or rulers neglect the duty of punishing iniquity, God himself will take the case in hand. His restraining power will be in a measure removed from the agencies of evil so that a train of circumstances will arise which will punish sin with sin. How does God punish? Not by using active power to inflict punishment, but by when we insist on going our own way and, and loving discipline is not brought to bear, God will allow some consequence to come from some other source to bring consequence to bear on that situation. And then the questioner then goes and asks, how does this quote above correlate with God's retributive judgments of, or punishment on the wicked through the last seven plagues? That's exactly what the last seven plagues are. I encourage you to, to uh, read uh, the last seven plagues from the remedy because I actually make that very plain. But the last seven plagues are the wrath of God being poured out, and they are a stepwise releasing of God's restraint upon the evil forces of this world and the principalities and powers of darkness who get more freedom to act upon this world, and thus more chaos and destruction occurs exactly in the same manner as was described here. So that's exactly what that is. Many times you say the Christian world believes they are declared righteous, but there is no change in, in behavior. I grew up Pentecostal and matured in my Christian faith in Seventh-day Adventist denomination. In either one, I have not experienced what you claim. Can you expand on your position? Also, their character and de- our character and deeds related. So all, every organization I know uh, t- in Christianity, including Adventism, teaches uh, two things, justification and sanctification. And, and the maturing that you're talking about is, is what they would say is sanctification. Um, and they would say, that's not what saves you. What saves you is justification. And justification is when you have, see, up until justification, you are under the condemnation of death. You are a sinner, bored, condemned to die because of sin. 
And the only way you cannot be condemned to die is that the payment, the punishment for sin has to be taken. God is a just God and, and the minimum punishment for sin is death and God has to punish sin or else there's no justice in this universe. So Jesus came as our substitute. He committed no sin and God placed all the sins upon him, past, present, and future. And God punished those sins in Jesus and, the, and, and, and you must accept Jesus as your savior because if you don't, then God won't force you to accept that salvation and that payment. But if you do, then that payment will be applied to your account in heaven and you will be declared at that moment to be justified even though you remain uh, justified or you'll be declared justified, which is the same as being declared righteous. The Greek righteous and justice are the same. You'll be declared set right, put right, justified legally with God in heaven. Your account is wiped clean. Your sins are removed from the record books of heaven. And you are declared to be as if you have not sinned because the life of Jesus stands in your place in the courtroom of heaven. Even though you remain unjustified in, uh, in, in practice, you still remain unrighteous. You're still a wicked sinner. You will continue to live in sin, but those sins don't count anymore because they go beforehand into judgment and get purged from your record book. So they make this legal external process happening in books far away from you. And now, even though now that you've been justified, you begin the process of sanctification, which is the work of maturing and growing. But while you're working on maturing and growing, you're going to still commit sin, and those sins are still bad things, and those bad things still get recorded in the record books. But because you're under the blood, they get purged by the record uh, from the record books. If you confess and continue to claim Jesus as your Savior, they never get counted against you anymore because you've been declared righteous, and Jesus' life stands in your place instead. <laughs> this is what they're teaching. It's all fraudulent. It's all legal mumbo-jumbo. It's fantasy. It does not happen. Okay? Here's reality. What's recorded in the books of heaven are the names. And the names, according to scripture, are your character, your individuality, your personhood. And so the record books of heaven are better conceived of as medical records. And if you think of a patient's medical record, what gets recorded in there is actually what's happening in the patient. If an MRI scan is done and they see cancer, the MRI scan of that patient goes in that medical record. If a cancer treatment comes, radiation knife, chemotherapy, and the cancer shrinks and they get a new MRI, the new MRI goes in the record and it shows the cancer's in remission. The records only change as the patient changes. And so if we want our records cleansed of sin, we have to have our hearts cleansed of sin. And that's why we have to be reborn with a new heart and right spirit. And as Paul said, it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And so when the father looks at me, he doesn't see my old wicked life, not because there's some magic thing or legal thing happening in books somewhere, but because Christ lives in me. I have new motives. I have a new breath of life, a new spirit with a new attitude that loves God and loves others that I didn't have before I was converted and accepted Christ. And that new spirit with new attitudes and new desires is what I long to do. And that leads to growing and maturing from a new heart. And so he looks at my heart, not in any residual symptoms I still may have while I, my new heart is growing up into maturity. So along the entire way, I'm still righteous because I'm become righteous in Jesus because I have a new heart. It's reality-based. That's reality. The penal legal system is fraudulent. It cheats people of it. So that's how I understand that. 
It says, have I ever heard of Robert Wieland? And he went around in the uh, 1970s doing a lot of um, 1888. Like, yes, I have. And also Short. Short and Wieland went around and did a whole bunch of stuff promoting the 1888 message. I don't believe they were actually where we are in our understanding of the message, but they were certainly um, trying to move away from a legal interpretation. It says, when I completely surrendered myself to God, I immediately gained a victory over all my besetting sins. Oh, the joy that filled my soul. As the days passed, other things were revealed to me and I was uh, doing due to me that I was doing wrong. I immediately gave that to God for cleansing and, the, and disappeared from my life as well. Do you and Come and Reason audience experience the power of deliverance? I would appreciate some testimonies in this area. This is exactly how deliverance works. We get a new heart and right spirit. Yet sometimes, sometimes with some things, there are old habit patterns um, that, uh, that can creep in unintentionally like a person might find when they're tired and fatigued that they get irritable and snap and say a word that they don't really ever use anymore. It just slipped in and they go, oh, that's not the language I want to speak. Oh, Lord, uh, what wretched man am I? Who will save me from this body of death? That's not my. And so your heart is grieved at some old habit patterns and, and learned and conditioned responses that you might have learned. But in your heart, that's not who you are. And you're immediately grieved by it. So, um, yes. It says, uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I heard you many times saying that people that God puts to sleep will wake up again and continue their lives. How can this be? Because he wakes them up either in the first resurrection and they continue their life in eternity, or he wakes them up at the end of the thousand years and they continue their life on the new earth. And the Bible describes they go, uh, excuse me, they continue their life at the end of the thousand years before the earth is made new, while the new Jerusalem is on the earth. And the Bible says they um, there's a period of time that goes by where the wicked who are continuing their life build implements of war to march on the city and attack it. But they're making the decisions, living their own life, to can stay in rebellion, to war against heaven, to war against God. No one's forcing them to do that. They're doing that. So that's that's how that is. They, they come up out of the grave with the same train of thoughts. They went into the grave and they continue their life from that point on. As I understand, people that didn't have a relationship with God will be woke up in the second resurrection for judgment, not to continue their lives. What do you really mean when you say that? Yes, they wake up at the second resurrection at the end of the thousand years and read scripture. And if you value Ellen White, she actually expands on this in Great Controversy and other places. But the scripture itself says there's, they, they build implements of war and attack the city. Well, who's doing that? That's not simply waking up for a judgment. There's activity going on there. There's living life going there. We're not told how long that period of time is, but usually it takes more than a minute to build implements of war. So there's a period of time going here. In Ellen White's expansion on this, she describes when they march in mass on the city and it's some period of time, that's when the voice of Jesus is heard saying, close the gates which means prior to that point, the gates of the New Jerusalem were open and no angels were keeping people out. The point is the people keep themselves out by their own free will choices. They have so hardened themselves in rebellion, they hate God and they hate everything righteous and they don't want to be part of God's kingdom and thus they finish their life by their own choices. Isn't there another little book in Revelation 10.10? 10? I think what you're referring to is the book of Daniel. 
that the, that he ate. I think Revelation ten ten actually is referring to the prophetic book of Daniel, which was uh, which Daniel himself said that at the end of time, uh, knowledge will will increase, and it's knowledge of the prophecies that were sealed until the end of time. And that knowledge started with the Great Awakening in seventeen ninety eight, leading to the 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 Great Awakening and the resurgence in Christianity, the anticipation of the second coming of Christ. And so that, that I think that book has been open, and I think knowledge has been increasing. But that's the book, and and it and it says they ate the book, and they were filled with joy, and then and then they were filled with 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 sickness in their stomach, and that was the great disappointment in the early 19th century when they anticipated Christ's return in the mid uh, 19th century, but he didn't return at that time um, because they misunderstood some of the elements of that, and then more clarity came later. But I think that's what that's about. When others lie about us and family believes them, what do we do when family is not willing to listen to our side? Do we have a duty to defend ourselves against the lies? As an example, last week you mentioned spouse believing a lie that the spouse was cheating. Yet we have a responsibility to present the truth in love, present the truth in love to those who are willing to listen. Truth in love and leave people free. And at the end of the day, if they want to believe the lies, you simply say, it's okay. If you want to believe those lies, you're free to do it. I can't make you believe the truth. I can only present the truth. You'll have to decide what you choose to believe. And then you make decisions based uh, on their responses on where you draw the boundaries on how you relate to those people and how much you trust them and how much you share with those same people moving forward. They're declaring to you um, the quality of their character and the maturity of their decision making. And you should be informed moving forward so that you do not expose yourself to further betrayal and hurt by family members who function that way. All right. Thank you all. See you all next week.